You're listening to a podcast from Oasis Church Waterloo. To find out more, visit oasiswaterloo.org. If you read the press, you'll find there's a lot of battles going on um, with uh, trans women and the use of women-only spaces. Um, and it's just a really complicated, and it's just got really out of order, I think, personally. Um, but that's why we remember the people that we've lost to violence and murder. And um, you, uh, Stephanie, you transitioned a long, long way back now, didn't you? Gosh, um, to put perspective on it, over 40 years, 1979. And um, up until 2004, with the Gender Recognition Act, I was a non-citizen in the UK, and that is really challenging. Very challenging indeed. So because of your history, you've obviously lived with lots of the implications of this non-understanding um, and prejudice. What's been your experience? I think my experience has been um, quite different from many other transgender people, um, mostly because I came into the transition because of serious ill health, um, not because I woke up one morning and said, oh, I'm going to do this. Um, but I found that personality, presentation, connecting with people is by far the most important thing for trans transgender people to do in order to connect and get the story across without, and this is the important part, getting chips on the shoulder because they disagree with you. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Now, I've, I've read your book. You've written oh. a book, haven't you, which is available... It is. Uh, it's on Amazon. It's called A Light in the Dark. And it's the story of how I came to my very first commendation when I joined the Met Police. Mm. And um, I've, also, I've also written a book about uh, the theology of transgender. Um, uh, a, f um, a few years ago, then I wrote a new version. And Stephanie's story is written into that as well, very briefly. That's all a bit scary, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> so... Um, uh, Stephanie, this is all, of course, in the news this week because of the World Cup starting today yeah. in Qatar. Yeah. Um, and not just trans rights, but LGBT rights as well and the oppression of all sorts of groups of people. That, that's pretty much true. And I've been following um, a lot of the leaders out there that are saying all are welcome, come to our country. But the problem <coughs> is if you, if you go there and you fit, one of, I hate to use the term categories, but I think it's fitting, and something happens, you're going to get stuck out there. And in my book, I wouldn't even entertain it at this stage until I was really confident that they've changed. So, um, there at Qatar have a journey to make. Yeah. Um, the UK has a journey to make. Uh, UK's on that journey. Um, I think there's little bits of improvement. Uh, some of you may know that during my time when I worked for the Met Police, I co-founded and chaired the National Trans Police Association uh, in order to foster understanding and to create bridges with groups that are really very hostile and very anti. And I had quite a degree of success in doing that. Um, one last question. It's that as we hear about LGBT inclusion and that ranges in our um, public life right now, doesn't it? Especially around the banning, we hope, 
of conversion therapy, this kind of bill that's going through Parliament that seems to have got stuck forever and ever and ever and ever in a day. But uh, most recently, of course, as guess most of us will know, uh, the government is saying we're going to protect uh, LG and B people, um, but we're not going to protect trans people and that's because there have been all these abuses it said uh, the Tavistock clinic that does uh, 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 that looks um, after the needs of young people who are thinking about uh, ch uh, gender transition it's it's been shut down now because the the accusation is that people just get, young people just get shoved through this thing, they're struggling with their mental health, their image, etc., etc., and then they suggest, well, perhaps I'm a boy and not a girl, and the whole thing's rushed through. So it's all become um, highly politicised, isn't it? And it's hard to drive at the truth behind all of these things. Well, when I worked for the, this is interesting, when I worked for the police, I was uh, an intelligence analyst, so I started looking into what is driving the anti-sentiment against the Tavistock Clinic. Because I know, hand on heart, clinicians are more interested in the welfare of their patients. Uh, and this kind of stuff just gives them a really bad rep. We do know two other centres are opening, one in London and one in Birmingham, which will be probably managed by the NHS. But what I found, and this is what really intrigued me by doing what we call open research, is that I looked into the Bell v. Tavistock case, and I found the solicitor was actually being backed by finance coming from extreme right-wing Christian mm. groups. For those of you who don't know, there was, there's a famous case of um, somebody taking the Tavistock clinic to court because they claimed that they were pushed into transition without the proper care and attention yeah. and counselling along the way. But there's a, there's a habit of um, these people that claim the Tavistock are responsible for their transition, which they then later decided they didn't want. The truth of it is that they are the ones that made the decision. They are the ones that signed the forms. So the Tavistock and the clinicians, in my book, um, were very sensitive to making sure they didn't push people through before their time. This is something that it really is worth researching for yourself, isn't it? This a big issue. You may like to know that uh, across our schools as part of Oasis, obviously you can't go through uh, 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 um, gender transition until after the age of 18. But what schools need to do always is create safe places for every child so that they can be themselves without pressure but that their questions about their gender are taken seriously rather than pushed aside and they're protected. And so we, as Oasis, have uh, some really great policies in place around all of that, but that's not always the case, is it? No, and um, I sometimes think in the now that there's so much emphasis on um, transgender issues that I think it's muddying the water and that there, there isn't the clarity that should be. And um, to put that in perspective, government had said they are going to reform the Transgender Recognition Act, but it's been put back, it's been put back, it's been put back. And uh, one real last question, Stephanie. I mean, it's the obvious question, really. When you transitioned from being known as a man... Right. ..to a woman... Yes. 
there is huge public ridicule around that. It's a tough decision to make, and it's a tough road to walk, isn't it? Well, I've been sacked from two jobs when they found out I was transgender um, way back in the past. I've been spat at. I've been followed home with knives pulled on me. Yeah, it's, it's a toughie. You can't just do it easily. So the question is, why then, in spite of all of that, did you feel that you had to take this pathway? For me specifically, um, I had a real problem with my skin, hypersensitivity to sunlight. Um, I always seem to be in a male-driven rage. And they tried all sorts of things. I spent loads of time in hospital, all kinds of different drug regimes. Nothing worked. Various psychiatrists? Oh, masses of them. And then eventually, because I worked for University College London and I built up a massive knowledge by self-study on the subject, I then, through the backdoor route, got to a gender identity clinic and that's where, in 1979, I got diagnosed. And the hormone treatment cured the lot. Stopped the skin problems, stopped the rage, stopped everything. So then, being someone that was married with two very young children, what do you do from there? Because you know the drugs are going to change you. But how do you live with that, knowing that you're going to affect other lives in a family unit? A really, really tough decision. Mm. Uh, Stephanie, thanks for being so honest. Stephanie is really honest. And I know that it, Stephanie would love to sit down and talk with you about more about this theme. You know, we're always scared of what we don't understand, aren't we? The more that we understand, like you said, Stephanie, when you get a relationship with someone, you come to a different place, don't you? Well, um, in one situation which is relevant to this church, um, which is the, uh, the alliance, not the people that, you, right. <laughs> that you're always arguing with, aren't you? Evangelical alliance. Uh, yeah, I'm exactly. never arguing with them. They, but, just, they just don't talk to me. <laughs> here, here's, the, here's the thing. I actually made friends with them. And to my utter amazement, I got invited to uh, one of the leaving parties at their offices. I thought I was going to walk into a hornet's nest, but it turned out my reputation had gone before me, so they were really open arms and welcome. You mean they were scared of you? <laughs> That's probably more the truth of it, yeah. They took a copy of the book and stuck it on their shelves, and I came away from that thinking, good grief. So it kind of made me wonder that whether we put up barriers where barriers shouldn't be. And that sometimes we need to work on facts and go actually see these people and see mm. where they're coming from. Always seek to build relationships. That's the thing, isn't that's it? That's it, yeah that's, yeah, that's my motto. So, Stephanie, as we finished, I wondered oh. if you could take that and yeah. if I take your mic, and we're going to light a candle. This is our candle of remembrance for the thousands of people who've been bullied and beaten up and spat at and dismissed from jobs and those who've paid with their lives for simply being who they are. Lord, we remember them. Amen. A round of applause for Thank Stephanie. You, Steve. Reading from Kesua, um, so it's from Isaiah, and then she'll hand straight over to Steve for our talk for today. Morning, everyone. Isaiah's Commission. 
In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and exalted, seated on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphim, each with six wings. With two wings, they covered their faces. With two, they covered their feet, and with two, they were flying, and they were calling to one another, Holy, Holy, Holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. Woe to me, I cried, I'm ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. With it he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And I said, Here I am, send me. He said, go tell this people, be ever hearing but never understanding, be ever seeing but never perceiving. Make the heart of this people calloused, make their ears dull and close their eyes, otherwise they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and turn and be healed. Amen. <coughs> Thanks a lot, uh, Kessler. Thank you so much. There you go. We had to listen to the reading because the words got stuck. That's what they've done for thousands of years, actually, isn't it? Just listen to a, a story uh, told. Thank you, Kessler, for reading uh, that so well. So um, if I can, uh, uh, if you switch across to my laptop, that'd be great. Whoops. So here we are. This is the, the final, third and final week of our series on this Hebrew word, um, uh, uh, this Hebrew word, haini, which means here I am. Here I am. And what we've done over these last three weeks, as Anna's little uh, uh, quiz pointed out to us, is we've looked at three people who said, here I am. That's not on, so uh, there you go. Uh, uh, three people who said, Hanini, here I am. Uh, first, we looked at Moses, and we looked at something of the relationship with God that had built up in his life out of which this availability came. Here I am doesn't mean I'm over here. It means I'm fully available. I'm open. I want a real relationship with you. Not just a religious one, but a one of depth which changes my life. I'm changed by you. And then last week, uh, Nath helped us. Nath's not here this week, actually, because it's his birthday. So he's away for the weekend, which is really great. Uh, but Nathan uh, Jones looked at the story of Samuel a young boy who hears God's call and gives himself to that. 
This morning, we're looking at the prophet Isaiah, that giant book of prophecy that's in the middle of uh, the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible. This man who says to God, here I am, and then adds, send me. So, um, Alpha uh, Oscar Rome, uh, Romero, uh, the Archbishop of El Salvador, some of you will know his uh, story. On March the 24th, to, uh, n- uh, uh, 1980, March the 24th, 1980, it was a Monday morning, a car pulled up outside of his cathedral in the capital city. One man got out with a long-range gun. He propped it up on the door of his car and he took aim at the archbishop who stood at the other end leading a service inside the cathedral. With one bullet, he felled him. Oscar died a few minutes later, laying beside the altar. No one has ever been charged with the murder of Oscar Romero's, uh, for the murder of Oscar Romero. Romero was a conservative church person. The archbishop of this South American uh, uh, country leaned in the cathedral. He towed the line all of his life. You can read about him. He kept in tune with the government. The problem was that there was huge unrest across the country. Endless poorer people were dying. Anyone who stood up against the military regime died. They disappeared. The gap between the rich and the poor was constantly growing. Opportunities for free speech were being removed all of the time. The poor were dying in childbirth. Masses of people were dying of malnutrition. They lived in appalling conditions. But the archbishop didn't feel that he could stand up to say anything. He felt that his job somehow was to keep the government on side, to step gingerly, to avoid the subject. But then in 1977, a really good friend of his, a Jesuit priest who wasn't known but who stood up to local government and fought for the poor and fought for their housing and fought for their food and fought for their education was gunned down. When you stood up in El Salvador, it often cost you something. In that moment, in that day, the archbishop had his life transformed by the witness of somebody else who gave his life. From that day onward, he adopted a completely different stance. And over the next three years, from 1977 through to 1980, he became known as the voice of the poor. He would stand up for everyone, whatever the cost. On the Sunday morning, 24 hours before he was gunned down, he stood up in his cathedral and he simply said this, God is light, and the light shines on beauty and brings knowing to it. But the light has to shine on injustice and expose it as well. 
He said that in the end, even if he fell, he believed in the resurrection and he knew that the truths that he stood for would be resurrected in his country and would go on. 24 hours later, that's exactly what happened as he was gunned down. The voice of those who had no voice had his life taken away from him. This is Oscar Romero. He gave his life for the people he loved. God said to Isaiah, who will go for us? Who shall I send? And Isaiah says, here I am, Hanani, send me. Imagine a country in which there's been stable leadership. A monarch who's reigned for decade upon decade, who came to the throne as a young person, unexpectedly. And decade after decade, they provided a stability to that country. But in the last years of their reign, things began to go wrong, financially, economically, the gap between the rich and the poor grew wider and wider and wider. And more and more there was unrest on the streets because of the oppression of the poor and the sense that no one was listening to their cries. Imagine that kind of society. Imagine that the monarch who'd reigned for decade after decade after decade from a very young age, was suddenly, suddenly struck down. They'd gone on and on and on, and suddenly their life was taken. That is the situation that Stephanie, uh, <laughs> that Kesawa has just read to us about. In the year King Uzziah died, says Isaiah, I saw the Lord in the temple, high and lifted up. King Uzziah had been a good king for Judah. He'd brought stability. He'd made mistakes. He'd got things wrong. He'd had his tough years. He'd had his tough decades. But generally speaking, he brought stability. Then he died, and there was absolute chaos it seemed like everything was going wrong all at the same time. Does that remind you of us and our situation? And then Isaiah, this young man, he was no more than 20 years old when this happened to him, had a vision. Though it's not contained in the story that, uh, uh, that Kesselwer read to us, we know from what's called the Jewish Midrash. The Jewish Midrash is a form of uh, writing. And the rabbis and the scholars and the scribes used to write down the stories that accompanied the history that was being written. And so we know from Jewish writings that it was believed that Isaiah, this young man, was at home. He wasn't in the temple when he saw this, the great temple of Jerusalem. He was at home. And he was at home just thinking and praying and studying. And 
when he's at home, he sees this vision and he sees God in the temple. And when everything else is chaos going on around him, this monarch has just fallen, he's just died. He died of leprosy, actually, King Isaiah. In, in days, he was gone. He was always there and he disappeared and there's chaos across Judah, absolute chaos. And this young man has this vision at home, so, say the Jewish scholars, and he sees God high and lifted up. And he sees these seraphim with their six wings, two with which they flew, etc., etc. And they're crying, holy, holy, holy is God. Shall I tell you something? We have no idea who seraphim were. This is the only occurrence in the whole of the Bible when that word is used to mean anything angelic at all. That's not the point. When I was a kid, I was growing up and I learned about seraphim and cherubim and all these kind of different angels and that, you know, how they fitted in. We have no idea what we're talking about because that's not the point of the story. The word uh, for seraphim is used on six other occasions in the Old Testament, always to talk about evil. So there you go. This is the only occasion where it means anything like angelic. Because what Isaiah's describing is something that he can't understand that's beyond him. But here's this kid, 20 years old, and here's this land of chaos, and he senses, he knows that the only stability in this nation is the God who is good and gracious. And as he gets this vision, he hears a voice. And he takes it to be the voice of God. And the voice of God says, who shall I send? Who will go for us? And this young man replies, Hanani, I'm available. And then he adds, send me. Here I am, send me. I'll get involved. Oscar Romero, famous example of someone who gives his life. But the reality is that it's not just about famous people who give their lives in this extraordinary way. The Catholic Church, by the way, is getting round to making Oscar a saint in recognition at long last of what he did for these people. But it's not about all of that and it's not about hugely successful people. This is about us. Here I am, Hanani, at Send Me. I had to do a little, um, a, a little um, input for uh, Radio uh, 2 on the Zoe Ball show the other week. And so I told Zoe Ball this story. Um, and it's a story that I've told some of you before. But 12 years ago, 13 years ago, in 2010, there was someone who was part of our church. She's no longer part of our church because she moved away. And her name is, was then, is now, Joe. And Joe and I had a conversation. And out of that conversation, it was just coming up to Christmas. It was a little bit earlier in the year than this. And, uh, and across the road was the Johanna School, which wasn't part of Oasis. And uh, uh, Joe and I had this conversation. And the conversation went like this. Why don't we suggest to everyone that, um, that this Christmas... When they uh, go buy stuff in the shops, you know you always kind of buy one, get one free, or buy two, get one free, you know, three for the price of two, and all of that. Why don't we 
said Joe. Why don't we just try to get some baskets of food together and then we go and give that, those baskets of food to the Johanna School across the road. We go do that. I said, that's a good idea, Joe. Why don't you announce it? So Joe announced her idea and over the next few weeks, and some of you are here who would have contributed to that, I'm absolutely sure. I'm th I can see Ogany and Emmanuel up there, and I'm sure that <laughs> Ogany and Emmanuel always contribute to everything. So I'm sure that Ogany and Emmanuel would have contributed to that. And to my memory, we got together five little baskets you couldn't really call them hampers, but they weren't that, you know, posh. But five little baskets of food. They were good baskets of food, and we delivered them to the Johanna School. It is out of that commitment from Joe that two things grew. First of all, the Waterloo Food Bank, which you've heard a bit about this morning uh, from Rebecca. I checked with Rebecca before I talked about this on Radio 2. Rebecca told me that uh, so far this year, the food bank has supplied over 100 tons of food to more than 12,000 people. 100 tons of food to more than 12,000 people that all started with Joe saying, shall we fill up five little baskets? and see what we can do. But the other outcome of that is that the Johanna School is now called Oasis Academy Johanna. The relationship that we built in, through those months led on to a deeper and deeper and deeper relationship until the point when Johanna became part of Oasis. All because Joe said, here I am, Hanani, send me. All because of that. Jesus did a miracle once. It was, um, it was the event when loads of people were there sat listening to him by the Sea of Galilee and uh, nobody had anything to eat and this little kid that we don't even know the name of, he comes with his loaves and his few fish and Jesus takes the loaves and the fish and everyone is fed you can go to the Sea of Galilee now it's on the uh, 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 up at the north end of the Sea of Galilee and the site where everyone believes this event this incredible event happens there's a church that was built a couple of hundred years later so I think it's been rebuilt several times through uh, the millennia but it's still there and guess what it's called the church of the multiplication. The church of the multiplication. I think that is a brilliant uh, name. The concept of multiplication. Do you see, that's what happened with Joe. She brought that little thing. And in 2010, stood right here in this room, who could have possibly known that 12 years, 13 years later, you'd be shifting 100 tons of food inside six months, I think, Rebecca said, and providing support and care for that many people. It's extraordinary. So, 
Hanani. Here I am, says Isaiah, send me. The Lord says, God says to Isaiah, who shall I send and who will go for us? For the whole company of heaven, all these uh, seraphim, etc. Who will go for us? And the question to me and to you, to us, still is that. One of my heroes, a real hero of mine, um, who, who died a few years ago, is a Catholic priest who I never met, um, uh, called Henry Newon. Henry Newon is a great, was a great writer. You should read his books. He wrote a book called The Wounded Healer. He wrote a book called The Beloved. He wrote lots of good, uh, great books. The Wounded Healer. He wrote a book about the prodigal son. All of these are really worth reading. But his book, The Wounded Healer, is really, um, well, they're all very important. You see, Henry was a Catholic priest who lived a celibate life and was a professor at several universities, top, uh, top Ivy League universities in his career in the States. And Henry, throughout his life, never felt that he was worthy. After his death, a friend of his, with Henry's permission before he died, wrote his autobiography. Henry was gay. And he was gay in a church that he knew wouldn't accept him. He lived his whole life as a healer of people. He gave his last, the last years of his life not to teaching at Yale, but he moved and he lived in a community with very disabled, physically disabled people just meeting their needs. He wanted to give all the time. Here I am, send me. But Henry wrote this in his book called The Beloved. I've come to realize that the greatest trap in life, it should say, is not success, popularity, or power, but self-rejection, self-depreciation. When we have come to believe in the voices that call us worthless, it contradicts the sacred voice that calls us beloved. As Isaiah prepares to say, here I am, send me, in the story Kethawa read to us, before that he says, woe is me, I'm undone, I'm unworthy, I'm inadequate, I'm nothing. And then one of the seraphim comes and in the picture of the vision touches his lips with burning coals, hot coals, and says, you are made clean, you are whole. Don't put yourself down. Don't write yourself off. Don't say you're too small. Don't say you don't fit. Don't say your life doesn't count. You matter. And as the seraphim says this to him, you are made clean, you're made whole. You're not inadequate, Isaiah, because you're just 20. You're just a teenager. You're too young. You're not someone who doesn't count. You count. Your life matters. And then, straight after that, it is that 
he hears the voice of God saying, Who shall we send? Who will go for us? And Isaiah says, I'm here. I'm here. Hanani, here I am. Send me. I've come to realize that the greatest trap in life is not success, nor popularity, nor power, but self-rejection. When we come to believe in voices that call us worthless, it contradicts the sacred voice that calls us beloved. Henry wrote that. Henry Nguyen wrote that, but it applies to you. Who's that for? The voice of a man the wounded healer who knew he had a place. Hear those words. What can we bring? Henry, always battling, wrote these words and many others that transformed endless lives. I know so many of you. I know some of you very well, indeed. I know that you're not out for success, money, power, fame. I know you're not. You're not out for what you get out of it. I'm looking around at you, my friends. I know that the greatest trap in your life isn't arrogance, but self-rejection. I know that the greatest trap in your life is a sense of inadequacy, that somehow you're not the real deal, that somehow you've not got it, that somehow God's going to use someone brighter, sharper, more salted than you, who prays more, who whatever does, does these extraordinary things. The truth of the matter is this, this great story. Isaiah, the king, has died. There's chaos. Isaiah, this young man, in the middle of the chaos, sees God, but then thinks, but who am I? Woe to me, I'm nothing, I'm a no one, I'm inadequate, I don't fit. And then this seraph touches him in this vision. He doesn't know what a seraph is, but he hears this voice and he knows that his life counts. And he says, here I am, send me. This is a prayer that we're going to finish with. A prayer that um, Henry Nguyen wrote. And it's a prayer that I often say. When I say say, cry. Henry said, out of his pain, out of his sense of brokenness, out of his sense of inadequacy, but knowing that he was loved by God, he asked these questions of himself. Did I offer peace today? Did I bring a smile to someone's face? Did I say words of healing? Did I let go of my anger and my resentment that he felt because he'd been put down for who he was in his very being all his life. He belonged to a church that wouldn't allow him to be him. Did I let go of my anger? Did I let go of my resentment? Did I forgive? Did I love? 
And then he says this, I must trust that the little bit of love that I sow now will bear many fruits in this world and in the life to come. Mother Teresa once said about the whole of life, when asked about her success, she said, small things that are done with great love change the world. Remember Joe. Remember the principle of multiplication. And hear the voice of God. Who shall I send? Who will go for us? Reflect on this young man's response. Isaiah, here am I. Send me. God bless you.